Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I am one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. With me to discuss the Mandalorian episode, Guns for Hire, is Gregory Pang and Nari Ely. For disclaimer purposes, nothing we say represents our employers. This is for entertainment. This is for fun. This is how lawyers, after stressful days at work, unwind. We talk about our favorite shows. Greg, it's been a while. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome, Josh. Uh, just my, my my team. The, the we're, in, we're in New Jersey. I know the listeners can't see this, but we're in my Jersey. <laughs> There's a in the playoffs, fighting for the division and conference crown, and uh, we're, uh, we're we're doing pretty well over here. Thanks for having me on here. That's uh, it's an honor. It's always nice to catch up with our uh, Canadian office. Uh, <laughs> Nari, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm always happy to be here, Josh. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, I did want to also give the other disclaimer that we usually give, which is that nothing on this show should be construed as legal advice. Uh, if you have a ownership dispute over a, a, a dark lightsaber, you should probably retain your own attorney. That, and uh, uh, we'll also throw out owning people is bad. <laughs> we don't do that. No. That's a bra brave stance. Brave stance, Josh. No, bad. So this episode is full of cameos from Jack Black to Christopher Lloyd to oh oh no Lizzo Lizzo yes you can see yes. my she was great on Saturday Night Live. I am not good at current music, so I'm a child of the '80s. I'm very good with play that tune there, not here. So. She was adorable and apparently is a huge Grogu fan. So she got to have a rip roaring good time. And, it was, and she did great. Mm -hmm. it's, it, again, it was adorable. So this planet or the city state is a direct democracy. And that made my political theory head spin and flashing back to Davis and all the classes I took as an undergrad because that is radically complicated for a bunch of people to show up on a hill and go like, so what are we going to do? And they vote. We don't do that. Now, Greg, you have some theories on this direct democracy. Can you talk us through this? And we'll probably jump into a little comparative law between uh, Parliament and Congress. Take it away. Yeah, my pleasure, Josh. So not so much theories, but uh, just a little explanation, because it was that just that one line that was mentioned. We're the last direct democracy in the outer rim, I believe it was. And so direct democracy, so two major types of democracy now. You can really go down a rabbit hole on these kinds of things about uh, types of democracies or it can be subtypes, but two major types are direct democracy and representative democracy. Direct democracy is where the citizens have a direct say, a direct vote, whether through referenda or whatever kind of mechanism to have a direct say into what happens to uh, the governance and, and law and lawmaking in the country or whatever uh, jurisdiction that is, is subject to that direct democracy. Whereas representative democracy is more of what we are used to both United States and Canada, where we elect representatives to a level government and they represent us in a legislature, a parliament or, or Congress uh, or whatever, or something like that. 
So here they are a direct democracy, but it's it's kind of interesting though, is that uh, I think the plan's called Plazir. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Plazir 15, um, that Captain Bombardier and the Duchess are, it was mentioned that they are elected regal, some kind of elected regal heads of state. So maybe like Naboo in a way where, you know, like they elect their queen. So perhaps there's some kind of, constitutional monarchy or direct democracy monarchy or something like that where their heads of state are have some kind of royal status but they are elected officials to represent the uh, the the planet or the government i yeah. thought the, i thought the line was they were royalty and elected so they could and so instead of like england having a prime minister that gets elected and serves at the pleasure of uh, the king or queen, whoever's in, you know, the the monarchy, that they overlap. So their Venn diagram is a circle. And so that was... <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's how I interpret it as well, that they had been the previous monarchs are still technically in the royal family, whether or not that royal family now has all the political power, but now have been elected to be the, the executive, the chief executives on this planet. And so I think, Josh, that's how I interpreted it, that, yes, it's now an overlapping circle of a Venn diagram. I also wanted to note, so, Greg, that was a really great explanation of the differences between um, representative and uh, direct democracy. Um, I interpret what's happening on this planet to be, well, I should actually start by saying my first thought, which is that most uh, governments that we think of as democratic have some elements of both. Um, uh, for example, in the United States, States, while for the most part, we elect representatives who then pass laws, um, uh, most states have some form, or at least many states have some form of direct democracy by petition and things like that, where the citizens can actually directly pass laws <laughs> um, uh, with, with some limitations and caveats. Uh, so I kind of interpret what's going on on this planet as something similar, where they are much more on the side of direct democracy and don't appear to have any legislative body. And instead, the people are directly proposing and, and voting on and passing um, legislation, but that they seem to still have an executive <laughs> who they elect. So it, it I would interpret it as, as like most democracies, a mixture, but far more on the scale, the spectrum of direct democracy than anything that we have uh, today or in our real world. I also do want to point out, as you mentioned, that they said they're the last direct democracy in the Outer Rim. Usually it becomes increasingly difficult to manage just as like an administrative logistical matter. Direct democracy is the larger and more complex your society gets. Um, so because this this kind of appears to be the equivalent of a city state, uh, perhaps they can still manage it, although they still seem to have an executive with executive like administrative functions. Um, but I would imagine that is why it becomes vanishingly rare to have a direct democracy the larger worlds get. Yeah, I think it would be super messy. Uh, Even in it, this episode, they point out a couple times, at least once, where the direct democracy has gone awry. And that's in that they uh, have, through their direct democracy, the citizens passed a law that you cannot shut down all of the droids, apparently with no exceptions. Um, so that was a funny one. Yeah, it's, it is bonkers to think about, which gets to the other issue that everyone just wants to do arts leisure and participate in the direct democracy and they rely exclusively on all the droids to do all of the work that is 
I think, terrifying. And it raises, you know, the complex issue that we've seen in Star Wars with droids with, are they sentient slaves? And seeing a droid bar where they're hanging out, partaking in like a oil infusion that has programming in it, uh, it is, that is super problematic. Uh, especially they're willing to be subservient and do work because they don't want to get shut down. They don't want to just be eliminated and replaced by biological workers. So they're willing to do all the, the menial labor, but they also feel that they're contributing by doing that. It is profoundly weird. Disturbing. Yeah, it's it's like well that, that those shouldn't be your only options. Like if you have free will and desires, then you should be able to live as you want and do what you want. And we shouldn't have a class of individuals that just hangs out and paints. Yeah, and this is this is something that Star Wars uh, has flirted with. Uh, the this topic, um, I'm I'm trying to remember the specific name of the droid in Solo, for example, <laughs> um, and her fight for droid rights. L three. Thank you, L three. It, it's it's a topic that that Star Wars has only ever flirted with, um, as opposed to sort of tackling head on. But you know, we do have the suggestion over the course of many different Star Wars media uh, that droids are in fact what we think of as people um, for all intents and purposes. Um, even in this show, uh, I think the audience is is probably with me that uh we we think that uh i'm trying to remember his name the assassin droid <laughs> oh what's his name uh, ig11 or IG thank you ig11 yes <laughs> um uh probably was a person <laughs> um and we were very sad when uh when he perished uh and so you know not to mention all the other droids from all the other series um we it, it, it's a topic that Star Wars has suggested that these droids um, are, are sentient, are self-aware, and maybe people for all intents and purposes, but has not, yes, has not actually taken on this issue of, of droid rights in the Star Wars universe. And, you know, maybe we're in for that at some point, but it seems like not today. <laughs> yeah, Greg, your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's really super interesting because I think like a, a an analog in our real world is that Okay, look at the kind of jobs that we do nowadays, you know, a lot of work, you know, policy work, you know, like mm -hmm. policy analyst and, you know, office worker work. And then you look at what we're doing now and then look at what we used to do before we had a lot of automation and, you know, machinery doing work and stuff like that. If you were to ask someone, let's say 100, 200 years ago, you know, like, what do you think of the work that we do now? It's like, that's not work. You're not out in the field. You're not doing things with your hands right so like it, it uh, it's it was kind of funny the, the i don't remember the exact line but you know like i see like from what we saw in the episode is that these droids were doing a lot, a lot of the, the service level work and and manual labor work right but then there's also like you know a lot of stuff that we do that we see every day a lot of like a lot of the civilian members of of where, where i work is that you know they they work at desks and they do policy and they do analysts and analyst work and stuff like that. So uh, I, we haven't seen quite droids do that, you know, like at least in this on this planet on this uh, city state or whatever it is. So it might be one of those things that there are a lot of people still doing work, but it's not none of the manual labor and none of them know how to do any of that anymore. And it's it's a difference between you sending a droid out to go get giant buckets full of hot lava on Mustafar that would 
you know, incinerate a biological life form or in the vacuum of space where a biological life form would die horrifically to, or say, undersea operations, uh, as opposed to uh, flipping burgers. Like, it's a really weird dynamic of does everyone just have like uh like bare minimum income that they all get and so is this like andrew yang land (laughs) where where everyone's just getting like it's it's kind of a common it's not really communism it's something else uh where they're getting their income that they need to survive and their job is participating in direct democracy it's a very weird thing to think about uh, because we just, that's not us. <laughs> like, it's just, we're used to coming together in a town or is, I think it's Claremont College has the motto that the, uh, the the city exists for commerce or something along those lines that, you know, which is, a, I think it's a Aristotelian or Platonic uh, reference what's the purpose then? Like, is everyone just, I mean, it's like, at what point does it turn into Caligula that they're just there having succulents from a living creature with tubes that they're all enjoying? It's, it's a really weird place. Uh, Well, and before we get too far off the topic, I did want to mention there's, there's actually one group of people on this planet of biological people who does not appear to be solely engaged in uh, pursuit of the arts and participation in democracy and pondering philosophy, which is the Ugnaughts. Uh, and it's never really explained. Um, I was, a little, you know, watching the episode, I was a little worried at first that this was like the underclass that lived under the city. Um, but what, everything we see in the episode to, suggests that they're there voluntarily, but that they that's what they want to be doing. And I think, you know, that is an interesting possibility that they're they're, they're living in a world in which uh however they're achieving it through some kind of social safety net or what have you, that people could live lives of of leisure and pursuit of the arts. Um, but because of what they agnots want to do with their lives, they would rather be doing mechanic work. Maybe it's kind of like the Star Trek universe, you know, like in the Federation uh, that it, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, we we advanced so far that all, all the, the the stuff that we don't want to do is taken care of, a, you know, by, in this case, droids. And then we can pursue whatever we want, we really want to do to advance society and you know, self-fulfillment and et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's, it's interesting without having more in but we don't have more information on the how the actual economics of this uh, world works that and boomerangs quickly back into you're exploiting a class of people so you can live a life of luxury while yeah. they're doing all the grunt work for you like it's a very weird thing i mean it, it's like there are jobs that have gone away that aren't coming back like we're not going to bring back the whaling industry to new england that's done we're not doing that again. There's uh, coal mining's changed because of automation and also moving towards uh, fuels that do not require digging up coal or moving away from petroleum. Those are like economic changes. And with that, those jobs 
go away and they're replaced by another type of job. So, I mean, I get the person who goes, my great grandpa hunted whales and I want to do that too, but you got to let that go. And that doesn't mean learn coding, uh, but it doesn't mean go to a coal mine either. It means you're going to learn something else. At the risk of going down a very deep rabbit hole, so I will try to not do that and keep this short. It, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, with I'm sure people have heard at least in passing about the recent advances in AI and machine learning and things like that, that are treading into territory that we have traditionally thought of as not the jobs that machines would take over, like making, uh, like writing articles, writing stories or poems, um, making visual art, <laughs> uh, like exactly the kind of things that I think the people on this planet are still employed in. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to think about that, you know, uh, those kinds of things may not necessarily uh, be solely the purview of biological humans, even in, in our reality in the foreseeable future. However, I think like th there's there's something to be said for uh, the idea that, as I think you've noted, Josh, um, every significant advancement in technology uh, has, has brought scary disruptive change, but there will usually be things for humans to do. Um, there will usually be a market for, uh, you know, uh, art that we consider to be authentic in some way because it's made by a, a thinking, feeling person on the other end of it. <laughs> um, and so I, I think at the end of the day, uh, there's there's likely to still be things for the people of this planet to do. I agree with Greg's point, though, that the the economics of this are not really as well explained because in the Star Trek universe, uh, with the advent of replicators and everything, that's it, it's it's explained why sort of typical economic scarcity for most things isn't really an issue anymore. Uh, it's it's never been the case in the Star Wars universe, and there's been plenty of, of scarcity of people scrabbling to get by. Um, and so it is a little bit odd. I'm going to have to assume that they're sitting on some massive natural resource <laughs> that we don't know about, that they're selling off slowly and can keep funding their society. Yeah, or, or something renewable that they have now. It's like they have the Hyperloop to get around the city. So we haven't built one of those. So there's there's that. And again, for changes in society, we don't have gaslighters anymore. Like they're not walking out at dusk to light the lamps on the streets. So again, that job's gone. Well, I thought you meant the other type of gaslighter, but those, yeah, not those people. But <laughs> it's, Again, that's not a career. Yeah, we have plenty of those other gaslighters. <laughs> that's a bad lifestyle choice. And it's hurtful and don't go around hurting people. Uh, what, but that brings us to uh, our Mandalorian friends. And there's the issue of the free exercise clause and the creed. And Nari, was that you who added Yeah. That? So I really, I went nuts when we got to this part. And it's like a single line in the show. But just, you know, as a, as a law nerd, uh, it made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, this direct democracy had passed a couple uh, potentially uh, conflicting laws. Um, the first one was that uh, they were effectively a, a pacifist society and by law forbid their own defense forces and their own law enforcement from carrying weapons within the city. Now, of course, you would need weapons to deal with hostile droids. <laughs> uh, so Fortunately, it is mentioned that their direct democracy had also passed a law that uh, allowed the free exercise of religion. <laughs> and 
for Mandalorians. And this was like almost a, uh, a just like a pithy one liner from like season one where uh, Mando says guns are my religion. Uh, but as it turns out, um, there is a, you know, non-frivolous point of view from the Mandalorians and the Creed that that carrying at least one weapon um, is, in fact, part of their religion. Uh, and so they de they decide that in this conflict, uh, they are allowed to carry weapons, even though they have this law notwithstanding it. Now, there's this this is great because it, it actually brings up some real world concepts that we have in the United States. Um, and that is, of course, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment uh, that, that people will have the right to exercise exercise their religious beliefs. Now, this is in addition to the Establishment Clause, which is that the government will not establish uh, religion, um, and they mean different things. <laughs> so the Establishment Clause is what we normally think of when we're thinking about um, to like preferencing one religion over another or making uh, official sort of uh, uh, religious invocations part of school prayer or at the start of, you know, a, a legislature sessions, things like that, um, that have this sort of imprimatur of, uh, uh, of the government official. Um, but in the free exercise, this is just me wanting to do something that I believe is mandated by my religious beliefs and potentially coming into conflict with a law. Uh, a little, just like, I'll give the tiny little primer of free exercise jurisprudence and law in the United States, um, which is that for a while, the free exercise clause was pretty limited in its scope under Supreme Court jurisprudence. Specifically, I think this was, I think it was Smith versus, uh, versus Employment Division, um, in which the Supreme Court held that uh, if a a neutral law of general applicability. Uh, you, essentially, you could not get an ex, a religious exception as a result of having a neutral law of general applicability enforced against you. So this would be, for example, assume that there is no evidence of religious animus. A legislature passes a law that says that uh, people must um, uh, work Monday through Friday. <laughs> Uh, of course, some religions have holy days in Monday through Friday. <laughs> um, some uh, religions, specifically, I think Friday. Uh, someone might say, uh, this violates my religious beliefs. I think that I should be able to take Friday off um, uh, and it should not be part of the law. Uh, that would run into problems with uh, Employment Diversion v. Smith uh, because it is a neutral law. It's generally applicable. Why Why does this person get an exception? So which, which was pretty limited in scope, as you can imagine. It, the free exercise clause would generally seem to not have a lot of teeth under that interpretation. Um, uh, and so uh, what happened after that uh, is that Congress passed what was known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, uh, which essentially uh, changed the standard to be that people had a right to exercise uh, their, their uh, religious beliefs, and the government could not impose a substantial burden on the exercise of those uh, beliefs. Um, and if they did so, they would have to essentially pass strict scrutiny, what we call in constitutional law. So the government would have to show that it was the least, the narrowest possible way to achieve a compelling government interest was by enforcing this law, even against this religious person and not giving an exception. Um, and uh, long story short, uh, it was uh, held as unconstitutional against the states, but it still applies at the federal level. And I believe most states have passed a state version of it. So most, if you live in most states in the United States, this is the standard of free exercise that you live under, um, which is essentially putting strict scrutiny in there and adding this uh, a substantial burden uh, standard instead of the, if it's a generally applicable, uh, neutral law of general applicability. Um, so there is a real world example that I think is analogous to Mando here, um, which is that uh, Sikhs, 
um, as a major tenet of their faith, I believe it's like the five principal tenets, are supposed to carry a uh, essentially like a, a symbolic weapon. It is called a kirpan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm, I'm not Sikh myself. Um, uh, uh, on them at all times. It's usually about two and a half inches. Um, but a lot of Sikhs consider it to not to be purely symbolic and doesn't need to be sharp. But it's a knife. <laughs> it's essentially a dagger. Um, and uh, at least as far as I was able to tell in my research, um, while while Sikhs have been fighting for a long time to have exceptions to allow them to carry it into public schools, into airports, onto planes, uh, for the most part, uh, the government has not allowed them to do so, and the courts have not ruled in their favor, um, which is a, a bit unfortunate. <laughs> um, so in, in our reality, I think, unfortunately, Mando would not be able to carry weapons. I will note that this is a talking about knives not talking about guns blasters or other uh or or dark sabers <laughs> um but uh, uh there is a real world analogy um and unfortunately i don't think it would work in mando's favor uh agreed that you know the the second amendment doesn't turn into the first so new no. uh now greg i i've joked about you know the monte python bit about now, mysterious women in lakes handing out swords is no basis for a government. Uh, but that's kind of what we have going on in uh, the man with, with the Mandalorians. Can you talk us through their system of government and whether or not they have an unwritten constitution on how they do business? Sure thing. Uh, but before I get into that, just a comment about uh, Sikhs and Kirpons. In here, I think just just a few years ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, uh, and I can't uh, talk with any confidence about the particulars of the ruling, but I think it was challenged under our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 2, and uh, it was either allowed in schools or some uh, kind of setting where you can have a kirpan, but then there are, are conditions attached. It has to be sheathed and and, all, and a few other things. But so so we have a decision, but again, I can't speak to any specifics no, Greg, about I think it here. You're, you're correct. I remember reading it's Canada and the UK. So the so oh the, yes, yeah. So of of common law jurisdictions, the US may actually be the outlier here. Interesting. Yeah. So I just want to just add that. So, uh, but that that was a really cool analysis, Anari. Uh, yeah, uh, dark, dark saber. This is in re, uh, regard to the dark saber succession. Uh, rules, I guess you could say. Um, and I had surmised, that, okay, so what's what's all going on here? You know, like um, they, they seem to be a, a sophisticated, Mandalorians are sophisticated, technologically advanced space-faring society, right? So, but they seem to have this thing where it's like, we're just doing this on custom and do people really know the law and stuff like that? But we have to remember that their society has been uh, devastated, I mean, the empire committed genocide on them and maybe they don't have their constitutional scholars. So my, my thing is here that I think that they have, how they operate is some kind of unwritten constitution. You know, it's not just that they can't find what's written down and how to interpret this thing. So, you know, just, let's just go through what has been said uh, on screen here is that you know, the dark saber must be one in combat, quote unquote, one in combat. And I'll quote the armorer. Uh, whoever wields it can rule all of Mandalore. It is said one warrior will defeat 20 and multitudes will fall before it. If, however, it is not one in combat and falls into the hands of the undeserving, it will be a curse unto the nation. Mandalore will be laid to waste and his people scattered to the four winds. Okay, so that's what the armorer said. And now we go to Moff Gideon. He said something very similar. Uh, in, I think, the very last episode of season two, it must be one in battle. 
in order for her to wield the dark saber again, she would need to defeat you in combat. And then Din goes, I yield, it's yours. And then he, Moff Gideon continues, oh no, it doesn't work that way. The Darksaber doesn't have power. The story does without the blade. She's a pretender to the throne. So there's a bit of a, what some people have been calling a technicality. It's that, you know, like that Din lost to that weird cyborg machine. Uh, he was dispossessed of the Darksaber. So he was bested in combat by that thing. And then uh, I was about to call her Starbuck, but no, Bo-Katan <laughs> won it in, you know, beat the, the weird cyborg thing in combat and, and grant, you know, and then so she beat the, uh, beat the last person who had possessed it, arguably did he possess it or did he cast it away? But anyway, so he possessed, it possessed the dark saber. So she is the rightful owner of it here. And it's like, so what's, what's going on here is that, okay. So what I'm, my headcanon is that, okay, this was first customary. That's like whoever holds a dark saber, whoever wins it in combat, uh, is is going to rule all of Mandalore, and then became some kind of constitutional norm, and then it became some kind of un, a part of an unwritten constitution for Mandalore. And this, there is precedent for this in our real world: is that the UK has partly an unwritten constitution, and there are other, uh, arguably, other constitutional scholars in the United States as well. I read that they they argue that there are unwritten parts of our constitution that are still part of a constitution, even though they're not codified in the written constitution. So there is precedent for this. And we have to, we could make room for, yes, this could be some kind of law in Mandalore that is supported by, you know, Axe Wolves interpretation when Din explained that, yes, you know, this is how she won it in combat. So it's not a technicality. This is the constitution, man. So you know, will the armorer and the, the rest of the children of the watch agree with this interpretation? I, I guess we'll see. I haven't seen the next episode yet. So it's uh, my, my thing. Another uh, thing, and, you know, just going down a little bit of a rabbit hole myself is that, okay, so they reformed their society. Bo-Katan has Darksaber. Uh, one thing they could do to confirm this instead of being actual interpretation and, uh, is that once they established or reestablished their judicial system is that they could refer the question for interpretation by their courts and i don't know if you uh, i don't know what the equivalent of you call it there but we call it uh references to reference cases to our supreme court so uh, it's like please interpret this question of of law or constitution of constitutionality for us so i imagine that now that that would be make the the worst season of uh or worst episode of mandalorian ever but that that can go to whatever uh, supreme equivalent of supreme court that they have or court of appeal whatever to interpret that constitutional question and confirm that this is a this is constitutional that Bo-Katan was the rightful possessor uh, owner of the dark saber and therefore the rightful ruler of all of mandalore so a couple points there first off would be the greatest episode because they could bring us in and we could participate <laughs> and we would bring sexy back. We would absolutely Agreed. rock that. Uh, the, from what you just described, that's something our courts won't do because it sounds like an advisory opinion and our courts don't do that. Now the attorney general can do an advisory opinion. Uh, state attorney generals do that all the time. And so does like, because they'll give guidance on, we think this is how it's going to be interpreted, but we'd actually need a dispute for it to go before a court. So there has oh, to be a case okay. in controversy. So yeah, again, I was just for the legal geeks out there, this would be 
Article 3, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which limits the jurisdiction uh, uh, of the federal courts, um, including the Supreme Court, uh, to uh, uh, controversy cases and controversies. So that has been in, that has been interpreted to mean that the court cannot issue an advisory opinion when there is not a dispute between adversarial parties uh, to, to present that question, essentially. And well, that's and really we, interesting. Yeah, yeah, because like for for us, like yeah, we we have uh, our governments have sent like for essentially those exact same things. Maybe because of, I don't know we're a socialist country or something like that. Maybe we're just more. Like, we, you don't have to be fighting. We we can actually just ask the court, can you rule on this question of law? And and one of the ones that I remember reading in law school way long ago was uh, about the succession of Quebec. You know, the Quebec sovereignty question, a question of international law. Can you rule on this? And then. Uh, they issued a written decision, and then uh, something called the Clarity Act was passed about, you know, the clarification of a question of, of succession uh, and you know, or separation or whatnot. So uh, that's really interesting. That's really cool to hear. Yeah, it's you could go all the way back to Mar Marbury v. Madison, where you had the outgoing Adams administration try delivering some judicial appointments, but they didn't go out on time. This is the abridged version. And so the new Jefferson administration was like, well, well, let's just take it to the Supreme Court. And it's like, no, we don't have original jurisdiction for that. So you got to work your way up to the Supreme Court for judicial review. So there's, yeah, it's like our systems are different. And this just turned into a fun comparative law discussion. Oh, Nari, your hand. I was up. just going to say, I did. I just checked and I... I... So, of course, because this is the federal constitution uh, that limits uh, the courts from giving advisory opinions, you'd have to check your state constitution to find out if your state Supreme Court uh, or courts can't issue advisory opinions. And some states, uh, apparently specifically, for example, Rhode Island, uh, do have procedures by which uh, other parts of the government can certify questions and get advisory opinions from their state Supreme Court. So you should you should check your local constitution. The more you know. So I just like to just correct something I said. I might have misspoke there. Um, I, I mentioned Supreme Court of Canada or a court, of, you know, one of our courts of appeal. But I, I have no idea. Uh, actually, uh, I know for sure the Supreme Court of Canada, but whether any of the court of appeal of any of the provincial uh, provinces can issue these kinds of uh, or, or, or write render decisions on reference cases. So that I don't know, and I don't want to give the impression that uh, they can. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. You know, like, just because like. We don't I was about to rely on that as legal advice. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we just don't do that. Like, so it's, it's really weird to hear. Like, there's um, uh, in in my time, I've done research on gaming laws for apps, and to figure out, you know, gaming uh, meaning like gambling, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and so, so like online gambling and apps, there are. Uh, a lot of hoops for companies that make games that have a gambling component to it for like, is it a game of chance or game of skill? And their states have advisory opinions from their attorney general on what's what. So, uh, but it's not like the state Supreme Court. Now, sure, there might be case law, but it's a really weird beast. So uh, I'm just glad we stumbled into this very interesting discussion about uh, advisory opinions from courts. So uh, go, go on, Greg, because I, I think we have a little more left. For... Yeah, I want. I didn't want to interrupt any further unless you were actually uh, had finished your 
thorough analysis of the Darksaber title. No, I think uh, I'm pretty much done there. I, okay. I just want to just maybe just as a point of interest, uh, just to follow the uh, kind of like the uh, the path of the chain of title or whatever you want to call it of the dark saber, you know, since rebels. And, and I'm just so freaking excited that, you know, with that uh, new Ahsoka trailer came out that we're going to get live action Sabine Wren. Freaking awesome. You know, like, and Hera. Okay. And, and Hera. Jason. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen a, a Zeb as well, right? Well, that's from yep. Rebels, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the same same one. Yeah. So, uh, so Sabine Wren found it, uh, found the dark saber on Dathomir. I think it was like Darth Maul's layer or something like that. And then she won it in a she went in a duel against Gar Saxon to be the rightful possessor. So she won it in combat against him, even though when she originally found it, she did not win it in combat there. So there, under this unwritten constitution, if if you can call it that, that she is the rightful owner, then she gifted it to Bo-Katan. Right. And then we all know what happened uh, to, you know, to that. And then I guess we can surmise it was stolen by Moff Gideon from Bo-Katan. Spoilers from the next episode. So that's explained in the next episode. Okay, (laughs) I will. I'm not going to tell you other than. It, we we get more facts in the next episode. Sounds good. <laughs> and then after that, uh, it was one in a duel. We saw that in the last episode of season two of The Mandalorian by Din Djarin. Um, and it, we went through the, he was dispossessed of it, uh, the dark saber in combat by that weird cyborg. Bo-Katan defeated the cyborg. And then she momentarily possessed dark saber before returning it to Din Djarin. But then Din Djarin, of course, we, in this episode, she he gave that speech about how, no, Bo-Katan's the rightful owner because she won it in combat against that that cyborg, even though it wasn't a, a duel um, per se, I guess you could say. So uh, so that's the the, the, the chain of uh, possession or, or or title of that dark saber. Yeah, I, I have a problem with how are you to find combat? is stepping in a giant trap combat. Because when Paz Vizsla challenged Din Djarin in in the book of Boba Fett, like that was set up as a duel. This was like, oh, look, a helmet. And he tries to pick it up and the giant bear trap closes on him. That's not a fight. Well, I do think it's interesting that like as, uh, as Greg's really great collection of all of the sort of, you know, references to this unwritten rule uh, kind of lays out, um, I do think it is a bit of a mistake perhaps on, on our part to have interpreted it as a duel uh, based on the reference, based on the, the references to what seems to be, you know, the law or the, the tradition. Um, it may be a more generalized form of combat. It does seem important that it is real combat. Um, as opposed to like something ceremonial, like, because otherwise, right, that would have been very easy for Bo-Katan and Jin. They could have had a duel, but a non-lethal duel, and then Jin yields. <laughs> um, uh, but in, in this case, uh, I think it is important that it, that there are mortal stakes. And I think that was technically true. <laughs> so even though it wasn't a duel, and the this creature, wa- you know, defeated uh, a Din Djarin through a trap, essentially, he was going to kill Din. It was oh, not yeah. non-mortal encounter and similarly Bo-Katan was in mortal combat uh, with the creature in order to to rescue him so I I I find that interesting I think this was actually a great uh example from the writers of of sticking to those sort of uh, uh rules and showing off that the Mandalorians have a serious respect for rules and procedure um and not fudging it (laughs) Um, but I think they chose I think they may have chosen their words carefully uh for that reason and I, I very much love that 
And this is a perfect issue for a reference case to the Supreme Court of Mandalore <laughs> yes, once, once their society is reestablished. And that would be right in your factum, Nari, <laughs> as, <laughs> or brief or whatever you submit for these kind of reference cases. <laughs> Oh, that, oh man, that would be so much fun, Josh. We should, we should think about that as a, <laughs> instead of a mock trial, a, mar, a mock oral argument before the newly formed Supreme Court of Mandalore. <laughs> would it, would it, would it probably be a petition. Yeah, but you, you could totally have uh, argument, um, at least. So I, I don't know how it works in Canada. Sorry, Greg. But I do know that, for example, even if there is not a lawyer to argue one side of an issue, um, there is a procedure by which at least some circuit courts can appoint a lawyer to argue one side of a legal issue <laughs> um, that they think hasn't been fully briefed. Um, so they could, you know, they could literally appoint two lawyers, you and you, you guys argue opposite sides of this question for us to help us better understand it. <laughs> and there could also be interveners in these kinds of, you know, for, for these, I, I, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just speaking way beyond, you know, what I, what I do. So I, I just don't know how the procedures work. I just remember reading reference cases. I don't mm -hmm. know how the procedures whatsoever, but I imagine like with a lot of things that go to at the Supreme court level, yeah, there could especially uh, a public interest uh, of things like the real life things like the succession of Quebec that you have interveners making submissions. Yeah, I could see that being a specialized area of law, like the way some people do appeals. That that's what they do. So again, fascinating. Um, again, the more you know. So with that, one final issue is. Were Bo and Din deputized law enforcement officers or just private investigators? And which one of you added that bad boy? I added it, but Take I it did away. not do much research on this one at all because I forgot I added it. But I can <laughs> speak a little bit to it, perhaps. It's, it's kind of weird. It's like they are, you know, one thing and uh, an analog to... Um, a real life situation, but obviously this turned out way better than that is in, I'm not sure if you read of what, what's going on in Mali right now. And they, they basically kicked out the French uh, to, for the security, uh, to help with their security and fighting jihadists. And they hired the Wagner group. Yes. The same Wagner group mercenaries who are hiring, you know, recruiting from jails, criminals uh, to fight in Ukraine. Right. And it's been, it went about as well as you think it has been gone. So it's just, it's just really weird. But uh, here, of course, it did not go that way. The, you know, the, the Mandalorians are thankfully not like the Wagner group. Um, <laughs> so uh, like, I guess one theory is that they, they could be deputized somehow um, as, as peace officers, uh, as we call them here. Uh, maybe they, they, they're temporary peace officers. They're allowed to uh, you know, use some kind of lethal force. But it it is kind of strange that you're allowing two strangers into essentially just without even escort with local police detachments because they mentioned they had they think they have local constables right not even yes they do. working with local yes uh, working with local constables to investigate but yet yet they're going around armed and uh and all sorts of stuff so it's it's kind of strange but it was just an open question it's like okay well, what is their status but it seems like it's something to that effect that they were deputized or uh, for a short term uh, period of time as some kind of peace officers yeah i i see that i could also see the private investigator because there are droids that arrest christopher lloyd That's and right. so yeah. the, the droids take him away after uh, he's captured. That still raises the issue that he gets captured. 
which is making an arrest. So yeah, this is this is a topic that the legal geeks have talked about before, and I didn't come fully prepared to discuss it, but I know that we've gotten into great detail on this with respect to the Mandalorian is like the difference between uh, a law enforcement um, and a private actor when it comes to, for example, bounty hunting or citizens arrests and all kinds of things that we have, uh, at least in the United States, um, that sort of, you know, toe the toe the dividing line. I think um, I, I hope you're right. Greg, that they were deputized, because as we've covered in those other analyses, uh, if you are not deputized as law enforcement, you're taking on a lot of risk from a legal perspective, a lot of civil and criminal liability Absolutely. that can attach that a law enforcement officer would be shielded from um, and could do uh, essentially a lot more law enforcement activity, like making stops, um, arresting people under lower standards of of a burden. So, you know, needing reasonable suspicion to make a shortstop or things like that. You don't have that if you're a private citizen. Um, and you could just be on the hook for uh, a false imprisonment um, if you try to detain someone even for a short time. Yeah, it's a weird question. I, again, I have mixed feelings on it because of how it plays out because it's, Well, as I mean, it was pointed a, out, the droids made the arrest, but they went through a very serious chase in which it, there was a lot of physical danger. <laughs> it's 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 not as bad as Batman and the Gotham Police Department, but it's close because at least with Batman, you have the like a confidential informant that's subduing the evildoer, and then the police go in and arrest the villain. Arguably, that's the situation that had that's here, except you had the heads of state send in Mando and Bo to investigate and find out because they don't have the their own resources to do so. So it's yeah. uh, might be comparable to the superhero conundrum. I was going to say that they detained a bar full of droids, except in Star Wars, I think they don't count as people. Yeah, which is again. <laughs> problematic so uh and all of din's progress over being nice to droids kind of takes a backseat for a short period uh but then again it's like you literally killed my parents that model was the one that murdered my parents that's a tough one to get over when you look at the the b2 battle droids <laughs> like like this i could see him getting a little high strung so i i can i can accept that well, with that, um, Greg, where can people follow you on social media? Well, I'm used to I used to say Twitter, but uh, with you know relatively recent events, I'm uh, not quite on Twitter <laughs> much anymore. So you just find me on LinkedIn, Gregory Pang, lawyer. You could just uh, find me there, uh, and uh, that's uh, yeah, that's that's about it at this point. Oh, and. You can find my uh, podcast, uh, Legal Cut Pro, uh, talking about entertainment law. Uh, me and my associate, uh, Michelle. So uh, it's about Canadian entertainment law. Excellent. And Nari, you have a very minimal social media presence. So anything you want to share? Uh, you can find me on Legal Geeks podcasts and panels when we make appearances. <laughs> um, uh, but I did want to have a closing thought, which was... Uh, I, I, did, I did really enjoy this episode. Um, I also, you know... I went on for quite a while about the free exercise thing, but I did want to say that I thought it was really neat the way that they depicted the society, which was a direct democracy, which 
kind of gets a bit of a bad rap, at least in the United States, for kind of being chaotic and disorderly. Uh, but it that that brief moment in this episode really showed that this society cared very much about the rule of law um, and that process mattered. Uh, and that even though it was wildly inconvenient that they couldn't bring in their own hired security forces, the man that I'm sure they paid a pretty penny for sitting right outside the city, couldn't send in their own security forces uh, to deal with the problem, um, did not break that law and instead uh, found the technical loophole which is, of course, you know, the lawyer's best trait <laughs> to to allow uh, an armed security force to come in. Exactly. So everyone, thanks for oh, go on. Greg, were you oh, sorry? I was just about to say one thing you just reminded me, Nari, is that uh, somewhere else you could find me is that uh, I'll be on a panel at the Calgary uh, Comic Expo at the end of this month uh, talking about the, the Mandalorian. So um, myself, a crown prosecutor and a, a crime author are going to be on that panel. So we don't know which day yet, but we'll be in Calgary uh, to talk Mando and I representing uh, legal geeks uh, up there in the north. Yes, and please record it so we can share it to everyone. So we'll do. Excellent. So everyone, wherever you are, thank you. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, stay geeky. Take care now.